Welcome back to The Profitable Python. I'm your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet Wukash Langa. Wukash is the Python 3.8 and 3.9 release manager, creator of Black, Hobbyist Musician, and Dad. Between 2013 and 2018, he worked at Facebook, helping to port millions of lines of code to Python 3. Currently, he lives in Poland, and in his free time, he helps EdgeDB bring the next generation database stack to the masses. Wukash, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Hi. Excellent, man. Yeah, I'm happy you're here too. And I want to kick this off with our first question, which is, how did you become interested in software development? Uh, well, I still remember this day very, very vividly when my dad brought me uh, Commodore 64 for Christmas. Uh, like I was six years old and there was a special edition of it uh, like sold in Germany. My dad was a machinist, so like a train driver essentially. So he uh, traveled a lot and was able to get his hands on one. Uh, like we were still kind of just um, recovering from, you know, 50 years under the Soviet boot after we won the war, right? So uh, like stuff couldn't be so easily uh, bought like back in the day in Poland. But we got this Commodore 64, so that, 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 that got me hooked right away because it was different from a Nintendo console, right? Like you actually had to type in a comment to even play a game, right? So that immediately sets you up in this mode of operation where you tell the computer what to do. You can tell it something else. You can make a loop. And sometimes that loop is actually irrecoverable. It's infinite and you have to reset the computer. Um, so yeah, I have an early start on that, I guess. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And what would you consider your first success as a software developer? Well, uh, like my, my first success in terms of actually doing something that other people are using is my first job actually was at an internet cafe, right? So back in those days, like people would use dial-up and whatnot. Like uh, not all the telephone installations that they had, like with the cabling enabled that the signal was too bad. So like internet cafes were really, really popular. Uh, I worked for one, like, you know, being a, a freshman high school student. And um, I actually automated how to actually count how many people are using the system and, you know, like, well, the computers and for how long and, you know, turn the computers off and, you know, re-enable them when people pay and whatnot. So that was probably the first thing that I actually programmed. Like, Embarrassing, maybe it was in Visual Basic, but it did its job, you know. So I guess, you know, kind of, <laughs> that was the first thing that I would consider a success because it actually brought me and the owner of the cafe some money. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. Um, can you elaborate a little on the power of Wabi Sabi? And hopefully I'm saying that right. The, yeah. pow the power well, of that philosophy. Yes, so uh, like I, I genuinely believe that, you know, kind of that, that there is no magic like um, in our lives that nothing that we do can ever be perfect, right? Like, like the wabi-sabi philosophy like actually tells you to embrace the imperfect, like embrace the impermanent, the incomplete. And I just think it's a wise way to live uh, since, you know, nothing is ever complete and set in stone. Like we, we never have the complete picture. Like we must take some best informed choices amongst the midst of the unknown, right? But we don't hold all the answers. So, so in this sense, like my entire philosophy of life is that constraints are not immutable. Like neither is your influence, not even core values, not even myself, 
because we just take you know the information we have at a given point into account and kind of work with it, run with it. Mm. So I choose to embrace the random, right? Like find beauty in the dissonance in programming. That means that I realize, and I wish more people realize that you are not your code, right? We should respect and empathize with the people, but learn to treat our systems as permanently imperfect. If you acknowledge this, you can hit issues really hard, you know, and it's fine because you're talking about the issues, not about the uh, people, right? So be concrete and direct. I guess, you know, that's, that's the best I, I, I have on that philosophy. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. It's, uh, I, I always, I, this is probably some, somewhere between 50 and 60 developer interviews. And I'm constantly amazed by uh, just the uniqueness of these philosophies that people bring to the table. I've never really, um, I've, I've never had a conversation about that. So thanks for sharing that. Cool. Uh, I, I was curious, um, because something else that cropped up in your pre-interview, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but I just figured I'd throw it out there. What were the drivers behind you deleting your personal blog and not paying attention to personal brand initiatives? Yeah, so like, you know, just so that everybody is on the same page, like one of the pre-interview questions was that, you know, like kind of how, how do you think about your personal brand? Like what attributes should should be highlighted about your personal brand? And like, I have this visceral reaction to this concept of personal branding because, you know, like, first of all, like, I'm not really purposeful in what I share. Like every now and again, I would know something interesting because I just worked on it. So I would make a talk and maybe a conference would choose that talk and I would go and, and, and speak about it. Uh, like if there are people having issues, I would respond on the issue tracker. Maybe there's somebody coming to sprints at a conference or maybe to the core sprint that we organize for core Python developers and stuff like that. But other than that, like I deleted my personal blog. I had a few things there, but like they, they were very far and in between, like, you know, over the years, I've kept it for like, well, on the same address since 2006, but there were maybe 10 posts there. Some of them were not really current anymore. Um, I had this like ethic that I tried to like, you know, really hard like to maintain that all the posts were both in Polish and in English. So that, you know, kind of me being Polish, that was kind of respectful to like, you know, the family and friends around me. But at the same time, like, you know, the bigger um, developer community does speak English, you know, mostly as a second language, but they do, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but that was very problematic to actually share that way. Like, you know, that, that made even small things large suddenly, you know, and it, uh, it brought me kind of, at first I did, did have comments on the blog and that brought people who commented, you know, kind of, you know, in, in, in ways where, well, that, that showed that they clearly didn't spend the time that I, you know, comparatively that I spent writing, but they would have opinions like, you know, that would dismiss the entire thing very easily. So I removed the comments first, right? But then again, like, I always had this blog hanging over my head saying like, hey, you should, you should write something, some, something more important. Like, again, you, know, you should share more. Uh, and it always felt like, you know, this kind of, this chore that I'm just pushing as, as priority two, yeah, as something that is nice to have, but I'll have time for it later. And I never did. And I just felt bad about it. So at some point I just d decided like, hey man, like I, I rarely use this anyway. Like there's better sources of information for all of those things that I wrote there. So how about I just remove it? And 
And I did, and you know what? Like it, it actually felt really good and relieving in that sense. But also it was good because you probably don't want to know this, but like you know, the backend of that um, blog was still like you know some ancient version of Django on Python 2.6 on some like you know kind of virtual machine somewhere there, like where, which I couldn't even reproduce anymore because it was set up in like you know in 2006 essentially and just like pushed forward uh, since then. So like it. You know, it was just easier to just scrap it. Yeah. I, I, uh, the reason why I loved that remark, it's so against the grain with like the, like the Kool-Aid that everybody's drinking right now. It's almost like, oh, you're new to programming. You've got to have a blog. You've got to have a YouTube channel. You've got to have all this stuff. And it's like, I, I love the simplicity that you created there. You're like, you know what? This thing isn't serving me. I'm getting rid of it. And I think people should proceed with that type of confidence a little they should introduce that a little more into their life so yeah that's yeah, awesome it's interesting it's interesting man. like actually i do have like a twitter account i do have like you know my facebook account uh and and several others right and it turns out that like twitter is mostly my developer friends so i almost use it as my like you know hangout place to just post about programming things all oh, and sometimes i would rant about something else right but like mostly programming facebook on the other hand is is is, is kind of the opposite, right? I would rarely write about programming there because like, you know, like what is my mother-in-law interested in? You know, she's not, right? So like it's, it's kind of different, right? Yeah. But at the same time, like, you know, really kind of the, 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 the mode of operation is that like Twitter, oh, okay, it's so easy to just start typing, you know, just hit it and, you know, just have people interact with you right away. Uh, but at the same time, like it does kind of hit you over the head with this like 280 character limit all the time, uh, which like, you know, kind of English is in this sweet spot where like, you know, you cannot really say too much. It's not like Japanese in the sense, uh, but at the same time, you can say something that is already coherent. Uh, coherent. Uh, in Polish, we have longer words. We have more characters per, uh, per a single word. So you cannot really form like a full form thought in a single tweet. It's hard. Huh. In English, it's fine. So I actually use it like as an exercise to like not talk too much as I'm starting to write now. <laughs> like, you can probably tell, you know, kind of Twitter is good. Twitter like, you know, forces you to get to the point. Yeah, that's, that's cool, man. So thanks for uh, sharing all that. And I wanted to jump into, man, there was, there was so much in that pre-interview where my brain was just exploding. Like the whole zero to hero and six months thing, like the people, beginners need to hear this message. So I'm going to, um, I'm just going to kick this off, I guess. When someone suggests that you could zero into a profitable hero, uh, with Python in six months, what is your immediate reaction? Well, uh, when I hear that you want to have like somebody being paid like, for programming from right. no hard skills to profitable in half a year, it does sound very optimistic to me and dangerously close to what the borderline scammy boot camps are selling, right? Maybe you can get a junior position in six months, fine, but uh, it will be challenging to keep it. Uh, there is a wise essay on this by Peter Norvig called Teach Yourself Programming in 10 Years. I highly recommend everybody read it. Uh, you can probably find the, the link just by Googling the you know, Peter Norvig Teach Yourself Programming in 10 Years thing or, you know, probably we can link it after the talk here. Mm -hmm. uh, but th the point of it is that uh, you shouldn't be in a rush to like hit a deadline. You should go deep, right? To maximize your chances for such an ambitious goal, you need to make the most of your time, 
right? Like, so even if you spend eight hours a day on your new endeavor, that amounts to around like 1500 hours in six months. Like, you know, and Peter Norvig is actually repeating this mantra of like, hey, like it takes around 10,000 hours of actual work to just get good at something. And obviously, obviously it's a rule of thumb. Obviously it's no kind of hard science, but there is truth to it. Like, you know, like experience actually and hitting something, you know, repeatedly and repeatedly exposes issues that are, so we're like deeper in the stack and this is what you get the big bucks for. You know, like everybody can read a tutorial and kind of, uh, you know, follow the happy path. But what happens if stuff actually does not behave as you would like, right? Mm. So, like, you know, you can and you should pursue this and, like, you can make tremendous progress in six months. But just don't expect that, like, this will get you to, you know, do already the things that uh, others, like, you know, it, it took them uh, 10 years to do. Like for, for example, like, it's very easy to waste uh, your hours on coasting, like on, on doing something that, you know, is not really learning you new things or learning things that are irrelevant. So what you're looking for at the very beginning is just strong fundamentals, right? This is because they are transferable between frameworks and libraries and other technologies like, you know, of the day. So I would not learn React. I would learn raw JavaScript. I would not try to teach myself Django. I would try to teach myself raw Python. I would not try to just do AI with TensorFlow right away. I would just go down and like look at NumPy. Like what does that do for me, right? So most importantly, just go and pick a thorough course for the very beginning that teaches by doing, but one that teaches fundamentals. So make an honest effort to go through this course and put in the hours. Find a place where you can ask questions and you will have tons of questions. So it's actually kind of doing it yourself just off of YouTube videos and tutorials is kind of hard, right? Because you will, you will need to ask in a safe environment like questions that appear silly to you, but like, like believe me, like very often, um, it's the tutorials that are confusing or it's the documentation that is incomplete. So it's not your fault, but you have to have somebody that you can actually ask. So having a teacher like is actually great. Mm. Yeah, there's a, uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but part of the genesis of this podcast was a direct result of some scammy things like that going on where people were saying like, Hey, uh, you know, like get, get your, uh, you know, get paid to program, uh, starting from scratch in like 60 days or whatever. And I'm like, this is baloney. So starting this podcast, getting people like, like yourself on here, like I couldn't be more pleased than to hear this message coming from an expert like yourself is just, it's super important to set the right expectations. And uh, I appreciate your remarks on that. So thank you. Cool. Yeah, like what, what I would want to add, uh, add here is that uh, it might sound like, you know, coming from uh, like, you know, a, a different point in life than myself, like that, hey, this guy is probably just gatekeeping. Like he just wants to discourage me. No, man, like <laughs> I actually want to make sure that you, you are in it like, you know, for the long haul, right? You yeah. can make tremendous progress in six months, but it will take you more than six months. Like, you know, you would not pick up the guitar, like, you know, and, and expect like to be Jimmy Page in six months, right? It's like, you can actually be pretty decent in six months if you put in the hours, but it'll take you another six to actually be a little, a little better and another six and another six. And, and you know, lo, lo and behold, and you're looking at a decade of doing this. Uh, mm. So yeah, like, you know, do the basic course first and then learn by doing, uh, like pick one goal at a time. Like don't spread yourself thin, just 
try to go deep in one thing at a time. Like, you know, for example, if you want to just do backend services, like to, just to run serverless functions in the cloud and whatnot. Okay, that's, that's a great goal. Like you just learn to write the serverless functions. Just pick a single cloud provider. Pick one of the big ones. Like, you know, they're likely to be there when you need them later, and they're likely to already be stable. You, you won't have to relearn things that they have every six months because they decided to change their API. So pick one uh, of the big ones and just focus on writing your backend code. Just get somebody else to like help you set up this. Like you just get somebody else to write your mobile app for you that actually hits those serverless functions or maybe the web app. Like don't try to learn everything in one step. Like this is like a recipe for disaster. Take your time. Man, I, I couldn't be more uh, excited to hear that message from you too. Like basically, like instead of having this giant to-do list, have a not to-do list, like focus and it's okay to delegate these other things out. That's such a powerful message for people that are struggling with actual productivity. So dang, man, I, I know for a fact you're onto something. Ah, yeah, cool. So yeah, I, I'm happy you say this. And like being on this particular podcast, I know what some people are thinking, like, you know, they're thinking, hey, but like if I learned Python, like it's probably possible for me to also write Python in the browser or make uh, web applications and like, you know, the, it, you know, kind of front-end applications with Python or mobile applications actually and games and everything. Like I can use Python for everything. So what I would have to say about this is that yes, it's possible if you're good enough and actually you see the business value in not uh, duplicating the code between your backend services and your mobile application whatnot, like Python is a possible option. But for mobile applications and for front-end web, it is really the best, actually. Like, you know, actually, you do have a default technology for those. In the front-end, you will have JavaScript, or maybe it's kind of, um, like, you know, TypeScript, the um, typed variant of it. For mobile applications, you're going to have Swift or Kotlin or maybe Java for uh, older Android. Uh, like, so just pick those. And the reason why is that, you know, we're not religious. Like, you know, I'm the release manager of Python. That does not mean that I don't program in other programming languages. It's mm. just pick, pick the best tool for the job that you can. Like, you know, pick it right away. Right? Just don't waste time to just try to force something into being something that it's not. Like, uh, picking the default option gives you tremendous access to community and you're going to have questions. Gives you tremendous, like, documentation and tooling. You want the best that you can get and you will get them if you just don't fight the you know stream just like go with the flow like just choose what the myriads of professionals that actually make millions of dollars on this are choosing as well um so yeah like that that would be my message as well like python is amazing i use it for a lot of things but it's not you know something that i would use for every single thing yeah i i love that remark about not being religious about the technology that you're using. So thanks for sharing that. Um, what, uh, what is like your biggest takeaway you think from that, uh, the, the Peter Norvig article, is it the 10,000 hours or was it something else you think? Yeah. So uh, this particular article really uh, like resonated with me. It's not actually new, right? It's, it, it's not been on Hacker News six months ago. Like it's mm -hmm. been there for years and years. Um, like it actually made me more comfortable with just taking my time. And what, uh, what Peter is saying in the article is among other things that it's not enough to only know one framework, to only know one programming language, to only do one project. Like you're gonna have to have like 
quite a lot of experience under your belt, like to make sure that uh, like you are you, you can face like kind of unforeseen situations later in your professional life, right? So like he kind of makes you comfortable with this idea that there is no silver bullet, but there is not going to be a framework that you can just learn and forget about everything else because it solves all the problems. That's a myth. Like every time uh, I see, you know, frameworks claim this sort of thing on their websites, I already know like, hey, like people are in for a disappointment, right? Like it's, it's, it's good that you have a tool that abstracts something that is tedious to do and it makes it easier that's amazing right it's good to have a tool that is faster or more comfortable to use or whatnot but if a tool tells you that you will need nothing else from now on like well soon enough you will and, and what then uh, so peter tells you okay that is okay like you you you, you cannot teach yourself those things in 24 hours, right? Like some of the books in the day were saying. Mm -hmm. uh, you kind of learn those things in six months, but you don't have to uh, actually learn them at the same time. Just take your time. Just pick one thing at a time, run with it. Yeah, I love it. And uh, so along the lines of the fundamentals and frameworks, when do you know you're ready to kind of reach beyond the fundamentals and start to use the frameworks and packages? Yeah, so I don't actually think there is uh, a particular moment in time where, you know, you just pass a test and, and, and you start doing something like that goes mm -hmm. beyond. No, like I, I, would, I would think that what you need is a strong course in the fundamentals. And it's almost more important for it to be a computer science course that uses Python than a Python course kind of, you know, like per se, right? Because Python is just a tool there, but what is important for you is to understand that, oh, there are all those data structures and how do they behave as data grows or uh, how does this thing actually work uh, like under the covers like what is the CPU and like, you know like how does the memory work on my computer like well, how is it different from my hard disk you know like well, how is this is, is this networking thing doing so like all of those things like you know you can spend months on just those but just a fundamentals course that will tell you like the concepts of hey like we are operating in, in this kind of model of computing and Python is doing it like that and like that and like that. Uh, it's like kind of liberating later on because you don't have to believe in magic anymore, right? <laughs> of course, you have to assume many things at, at the start when you're a beginner, like you won't, you won't understand everything like, you know, from, from day one. So you just assume like, okay, this thing is going to do the right thing. Why? I, I'm not really sure, but I'm just going to kind of, you know, follow the teacher, like follow the course and just type it in and, and that will hopefully work. Most of the time it will. But the point is for you to kind of, you know, remove this fog of war, to like remove uh, this kind of assumption of something magically doing its thing. Like there is really no magic. Like those things are amazingly, amazingly understandable under the covers. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, like that, that particular fundamentals course is something that I would, I would say is kind of non-negotiable. If you skip that thing and just go for Django right, right away, like you might kind of cheat your way into like a, like a job where you're just doing some forms and you're fixing, you know, some queries and views and whatnot, that's fine. But like every now and again, you will like require help from somebody that actually understands what, what, what is happening because Kind of mysterious problems are going to arise, I and mean, they're going to keep arising all the time. And, and it's just kind of like a miserable way to live. So <laughs> I would say, hey, like spend this time to actually understanding Python under the covers, 
And then, you know, once this discourse is done, like obviously Peter says it and I repeat it, like, you know, he's a smart guy, like just pick a project and run with it. And at this project, you shouldn't just run in, in like pure Python. It's, it's just too much work, too much boilerplate. So then you can pick some particular technology. You can pick Django for, you know, just running your own uh, web service entirely. You can pick some APIs, some libraries to just do a serverless function. Or maybe you want to be a data scientist, or you're going to actually pick NumPy and just do stuff that there. Uh, so I, I don't think there is a kind of, there is a numeric boundary, like, oh, I spent six weeks, I'm ready. Or uh, like, you know, I passed an exam, like, no, there's no exam, but, you know, kind of, as soon as you feel comfortable like with the with the fundamentals and you actually finish a course that somebody prepared for you hopefully they they knew a bit better you know what, what you do need to do there mm -hmm. you're ready to kind of you know pick something up and 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 run with it and you know what the wonderful thing is like if you don't like Django, you actually you know kind of try it out and you actually realize that hey uh, this doesn't really fit how I would like to do this, there's plenty more. Maybe you would like how Flask is doing things instead or, or whatnot. So there, there is always choice there. And now you can pick and choose. Um, but the fundamentals don't change. Like the reason why I stress them so hard is that they are transferable. And they, they, they kind of, they will survive the birth and death of frameworks, you know, of the day. Yeah, that's, that's really powerful. I'm glad you shared that. Um, I guess the natural question that I have next is, and you can decline to answer if you want, but what are some learning resources that you endorse for new programmers on mastering the fundamentals of Python? Yeah, well, I actually don't have a kind of uh, like a course ready to just, you know, recommend, which is maybe like a big disappointment after all that I did say. Um, but what, what I do believe in is that it actually doesn't really like doesn't really matter which one it is uh, unless it's really something that like you just found and you don't know is it, whether it's like popular at all like whether anybody is using it like probably don't choose don't choose like just on the basis of like a flashy website but if you do pick up a book and that book has an animal on its uh, cover right so like obviously like it's 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 one of the kind of um, better recommendations already right because like that particular publisher just doesn't doesn't publish rookie books yeah. uh, like that's already good right uh, if you want to um, like learn online right there's resources there uh, like pick something like uh, well I, I try really hard not to kind of you know kind of put in a name there uh, but like put something that you see is popular right like if you do have something that has like tre a tremendous following on Twitter like if you see that they, their particular articles and videos gather a lot of views and they gather a lot of comments and whatnot. Like, you know, it's a, it's a community, you know, like you're not going to be there on, on your own. Uh, and there's plenty of those, right? Like there is a particular, a very interesting kind of uh, book, a book on CPython internals that is just coming up. Like, you know, like that might be something that you might want to like go ahead and actually learn, like how, how does this thing work under the covers? Like amazing. Um, but what, what I really want to stress is that like, I don't believe that there is a particular blessed single best way to learn, right? Like even if I would to recommend you one, uh, probably would be disappointed because it's not how you learn. Like you will, you would actually need something else. So mm. I'm kind of anxious to like give a single recommendation. Obviously a lot of people do ask me this question uh, and I, I kind of learned not to give them like a straight, like, oh, here's your hyperlink, you know, just pay, pay this to Amazon or whatnot, they will ship you the book. 
or buy this course and you know you will have the videos or whatnot mm -hmm. i don't do that anymore because too many people were disappointed and i learned that it's not actually their fault it's mine because i make assumptions i don't know them i don't know who is actually listening to me like what what, what they what their needs are uh so i don't want to recommend a single one uh what i do want to say is that like as with anything else look around and see if the restaurant you're entering is empty if it's empty that's probably not a good sign right like, you, know, you, you, you want to see that like you know like that there is a healthy following there already yeah oh man that's awesome thanks for sharing that and uh i guess just kind of i really want to just hammer uh home this whole like beginner area and then we'll kind of move on to some other things um i was curious if you had any ideas on some projects uh, that seem practical, but can also kind of be accomplished with the fundamentals of Python uh, in case just to kind of entertain that whole like project-based learning, but also kind of hammering home on those fundamentals. Yeah, so uh, like Python is actually very strong at being just put as a backend service like somewhere in the cloud, right? Like, so you want to have, I don't know, something that speaks HTTP, but maybe not even, right? Like, you know, if you have a serverless function, then it doesn't really matter, like, you know, how it's going to communicate with the outside world. You just need it to just like make some little worthwhile thing uh, and just put it somewhere where uh, other applications can hit it. So like one particular example of this is that you might uh, put a service that um, does some calculations that are not trivial and just expose it with a simple HTTP, JavaScript, whatever uh, web page. Uh, like, again, like if, if you're new to those, just like, you know, get some help from somebody else. Maybe you can pay somebody on Fiverr and just like get it done. Like, you know, just don't get distracted. Uh, but there's plenty of very interesting calculations, you know, kind of, I'm, I'm not sure like when you're going to be listening to this particular episode. So maybe like this entire like kind of pandemic situation that we are in the middle of right now is going to kind of blow over right now. Uh, but even if it's the case, like there's going to be more things that you see raw data streams somewhere online and you have questions. You would like to know more about them. So Python is terrific to do those computations for you and display them in like a nice form. Uh, so like this is a totally approachable project, right? Like you, you might find some data, essentially governments uh, like love to put data out in formats that are not human readable. So you're going to have plenty of CSVs and XMLs and maybe the newer systems are, are going to be JSON. So like, okay, it's open data, but like, can you actually see anything there? Like, not really. You need to do some work, uh, some additional work to actually uh, kind of you know, make decisions based on this, or or even just find your place in it. Like you know, see like what what, do, what does the data mean? Uh, so such a project is absolutely doable, right? Like it does not require uh, kind of countless uh, hours on figuring out like a certain framework or you know how to make this kind of this character animate nicely, or how do you put a texture on a thing, or how do you make a sound just appear at this very moment, like there's much less kind of external things that you need to worry about, but those kinds of uh, programs, those kinds of systems are tremendously useful. Like now, like in the current situation, like you have like maybe tens or, uh, well, like a lower a lower tens uh, of tabs open in my browser, like in all sorts of information that I'm interested in, like, you know, with the, uh, with the current spreading pandemic. Uh, so, like, somebody actually went ahead and made a program that, um, you know, kind of feeds from officially available information but presents them in a form that is way more useful for them. So, uh, like, you know, that is one recommendation that I would give. 
Yeah, that's a really cool idea. Um, and hopefully that gets the wheels turning for people that maybe don't have intuition on exactly what you can do with Python. So that's excellent. Um, so I know sometimes like I just reflect on myself when I first started out, sometimes newcomers have a hard time articulating the questions that they actually even need to ask. And so I was wondering if you had any tips for someone in that situation. Yeah. So, um, like as an as an open source maintainer, we, we really do have this template on how to ask questions. Because uh, very often, when people uh, you know like run to your project telling it that there is a bug, something doesn't work, uh, what they really want to do is they want to ask like, hey, what I expect is this, what I did is this, and what happened is this, right? And those three are not kind of converging into what I wanted. Right, like, and, and that already kind of changes the conversation, right? Like, if you say I did this, I expected this to happen, but actually this other thing happened instead. Uh, that is that is a very clear way that helps the other person understand where you're coming from and maybe help you, even if you're not using the right terminology. Like, you know, it doesn't really matter, and you know why? Because every programming language uses different terms for the same things, and every framework is going to use some magic word that now it's blessed. To this official term but you know what like actually in computer science it's not it's just they're <laughs> using it because like putting names on things is tremendously useful it's like kind of it's 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 lossless compression for like natural language right so obviously it makes sense to use like fancy names for things but if you don't know those fancy names like don't get discouraged just say hey i did this i expected this to happen but instead this other thing happened i can know that that way of asking questions kind of like speeds up of the conversation and you know kind of already shows you like what you should be doing, right? Like you should be able to say, this is the thing I did and this is what I expected. Like, like people that are very early on with their programming adventure, like sometimes don't even know what they expect to happen. Like, you know, they just kind of type in a thing because they saw it somewhere, but they didn't really think it through. Like, you know, what do they think is gonna happen when it, when it executes? So just, um, this framework of asking questions, this framework of thinking, I think is helpful for both sides of the story. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And I was curious, uh, what criteria do you recommend a new programmer uses when vetting communities to get help or to get unstuck? Yeah, well, so, um, there's pl there's plenty of communities right now like you know plenty of programming languages to choose from and whatnot but in the end i do think that the cho the choice is uh not as big as people would think but for example like if you really want to start with uh programming on mobile devices and the mobile devices you're interested in start with i like then like probably you're just stuck with swift you know, whatever whatever you're gonna be like you know facing with like you're gonna be the same people um, so like not always there's a choice, right? Like in particular, Python does have a community that is very conscious about uh, diversity, is very conscious about, you know, codes of conduct, is very conscious about uh, trying to be helpful. But at the same time, we are not perfect. We are also known uh, to be kind of maybe abrupt, like, you know, to kind of not, not take the time to explain every newcomer with exactly the same amount of, uh, like verbosity, uh, you know, why their idea for Python that they knew for a month, like it's not really doable or it was already thought through like, you know, multiple times and rejected or whatnot. So uh, like we try because we are here for this, for, uh, for the long haul, 
uh, to really be, you know, just good people to one another, right? Like, you know, we, we were beginners at the same time. Uh, but every now and again, somebody will have a bad day. Somebody will slip. So what I would kind of recommend if you're just uh, starting or starting out is that just prepare yourself like to have great uh, experiences and to have worse experiences and don't get those bad experiences get to you, right? Don't, yeah. don't treat this as some personal failure of yours or don't treat uh, this personal failure as, well, personal, don't treat this failure as a failure of the entire community. Well, in Python, there's like millions of programmers that actually use this language, right? There's uh, thousands of people that, you know, are involved in core Python and, uh, you know, over a hundred of core developers. So even if somebody is not uh, behaving as you would like them to, there are uh, ways where you can actually uh, contact somebody like, you know, the Python Server Foundation, they do have like a code of conduct, uh, like uh, kind of, um, that is pretty much, um, you know, mandatory for all official communication channels or the PSF, and they do enforce it. So you, you do have a recourse if something's serious. But if something is not serious, but somebody is just a jerk for you, like, you know, I mean, yeah, probably you're right. Uh, and you should just not get discouraged just on that one interaction alone. And I do understand that, like, you know, kind of, you, you don't see this, you hear part of it, but like I, I, me being a white male, like, you know, it probably has maybe a small percentage of the problems other demographics, other genders like might actually have. So I do appreciate that some people don't have it as easy as I did. But even like even for me, like you know, not all interactions were stellar. Um, and th that does not mean that you know your one particular community is trash. You should just find uh, another one that is perfect. No, actually, mm -hmm. with size, you're gonna have issues everywhere. So what I would recommend is like, hey, like. Find a community that does have channels for newcomers that are specifically, uh, you know, kind of catered towards newcomers, right? That already guarantees you that like nobody will scold you for having basic questions. That's, that's already good. Uh, and then understand that like maybe somebody uh, kind of responding to you might be another beginner, might not even be a representative of the community who is there for like 20 years. Like, well, maybe maybe the guy just kind of signed up like a week before you. So uh, like, I, I am kind of heartbroken every time I hear a story and that's like very early about Python, but like in general that somebody tried to do something with programming and they found somebody who is unpleasant, you know, kind of, and they said like, hey man, like that never happened to me when I did like woodwork or whatever else, like, you know, what is this? Mm -hmm. But the thing is, like, if you have, like, you know, some woodworking workshop, maybe you're going to have, like, 20 people in the same room at, the, at any given time. At an online community, you can have tens of thousands. So, like, the probability that you're going to have some outspoken jerk is unfortunately higher. Yeah. Uh, so, like, yeah, I, I do think it's another case of, like, you know, sad hookah, like, you know, setting expectations for people, like, you know, telling them it's not going to be as easy. But, hey, expect most of your interactions to be amazing, to be worthwhile, to be actually very worthwhile. But uh, there are going to be instances of interactions, even with famous people, sometimes. Like, unfortunately, I'm, yeah, sometimes that, that's true. But just don't get that, you know, kind of discourage you from trying because it's, it's kind of your time, it's your life, like, you know, to kind of work you know, regardless of a single unpleasant uh, interaction. Yeah, that's, that's a great message. And uh, for those of you that don't, you've never, uh, you know, 
at least now you know what to kind of expect the entire, the good and the bad and the ugly. There you go. There you have it. So, <laughs> um, with regards to AI, you had some, uh, kind of some interesting remarks that I wanted to dig into here. So, uh, what is the conundrum that you see between the hype of AI and true intelligence? Yeah. So like these days I'm very happy for AI as a, you know, kind of popular topic because it is something that kept Python afloat for a while. Like it's something that, you know, made Python rise uh, to where it is today. So it's an important community for us. Uh, but I do feel like what people are actually doing and what people are calling AI are kind of non-congruent. I guess like, um, the work behind uh, AI is not about actual intelligence. Uh, I do feel like the name is maybe a bit, uh, how would I say? Well, maybe it's ambitional, right? Maybe it's kind of something that people would like in the far future. But then I really have this thought that, but do they really want intelligence, right? Like the, the problem is this, uh, like I don't think intelligence is a factor like is a feature of a computer that you actually want to have like as douglas hofstadter said in it is an inherent property of intelligence that it can jump out of the task it is performing and survey what it has done it is always looking for and often finding patterns cool right so we've had plenty of examples when this pattern finding property when applied blindly produces systems which are terrible Amazon's resume filtering system learned to exclude women based on the existing demographic of technical employees, right? So that's terrible. Microsoft's AI chatbot that they released one day, like, you know, it was like a year ago or something, like became a right-wing extremist in like less than 24 hours after launch, just from talking to people who just thought it would be fun to troll it, right? So those are cliche examples, but they're true. Like that, that's, that's, those are things that happen. Like you can research this online and there's plenty more. So true intelligence would mean programs uh, who, which are able to self-modify, to respond to situations flexibly, but also to make mistakes, right? Learning is not just doing incrementally better things. Like sometimes you will just misstep, sometimes you will do something wrong. But these days it's almost never acceptable for a production system to make mistakes. Just because we hope it will just become wiser in the future all the time, right? So I'm not even talking about the moonshot ideas like self-driving, which I find like tremendously funny. Like there is a level of self-driving you can get to, which I even have like in, in, in my car, right? Okay, you have like, you know, this adaptive cruise control and whatnot. And that's the level of comfort that I have with it. But like if somebody says that, hey, like we'll be able to just like, you know, tell the destination is going to do the right thing. Like I'm super skeptical. There's so many things around the road that you need to be wary of. Like you need to understand that somebody waves at you saying, okay, I'm doing something else. I am not going to actually do anything. So just you need to go, even though, you know, I have the right of way. You might actually notice somebody, uh, you know, playing with the ball uh, on the sidewalk and you expect that, hey, that, that ball might actually go into the road any given moment. So you will slow down but you also don't want to slow down if you see something that is very unlikely to cause problems. Because if you just, you know, overshoot with the safety, like, you know, the application, uh, you know, is, is now not really useful anymore. So I'm not even talking about moonshot ideas like this. I'm not talking about medical robots. Like 
even in non-life critical use cases, failure modes for adaptive programs are often very disappointing and hard to explain. If you get recommendations that are absolutely bad for you for some reason, or maybe they're actually too good, you know, somebody now has to explain what happened. Uh, and, and this is something that is very rarely um, like easy to do. Those are black boxes. You know, there's inputs, there's outputs. Something happened in between. What? We don't really understand. So I would say, hey, you know, like what people actually want is systems that can be increasingly complex while retaining the ability for humans to grok them, right? This is why Python is so important because it minimizes cryptic syntax and boilerplate, but we just need it so that it becomes more powerful under the hood, right? The more powerful Python becomes, that helps us, but it doesn't mean it will be actually intelligent in the strict sense of the word. So that is what I'm excited about. For example, PyPy is written in Python, right? And this allows their team to implement behavior that is often considered kind of unrealistic for CPython, like CPython being the official main version of Python that you're probably using. Right? It's called CPython because it's written in C. Right? So among others, um, PyPy sports this powerful ability to modify your program at runtime by evaluating how it's doing, recognizing patterns, and generating more efficient machine code when it can. Well, that sounds a lot of like intelligence, right? So this is where I think we will be going, but it's not intelligent. It's what we call like just-in-time compilations, right? Like the JIT that uh, PyPy sports. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that I... I can uh, appreciate uh, just the landscape a lot more after you shared that. So, um, so, and maybe you answered this question here at the end. The next part of this was, why do you see PyPy as the direction of intelligence that we are headed towards? And I guess it's just, um, we want that grokking functionality. Yeah, so like in particular, uh, CPython is the default implementation that almost everybody is using because it's, it's what was there for 20 years from now, like you know, 20 years ago, and it's going to be 20, there 20 years from now. But I do feel like it is already a proof that having a higher level language allows for more, that PyPy being itself written in a variant of Python allows for way more complicated like design, um, you know, approaches that they have internally, um, like CPython being written in C, which is a rather low-level language, is kind of, you know, it's, it's error-prone, it's uh, very verbose for many very simple things. Mm. So PyPy already shows that having a higher-level language is kind of uh, expanding your vocabulary kind of exponentially, right? Now you can really communicate on a different level with the machine. You can kind of focus on totally different problems now. You don't have to worry whether your string of you know, bytes is long enough for you to copy from one to the other or whatnot. Mm. Uh, so having this, I do believe that PyPy is in a very unique position to allow actual improvements to how Python, as we understand it and already use it, can evolve in the future. So far, like sadly, like PyPy is mostly playing catch up with like, you know, we are already working on Python 3.9, like PyPy being a separate project now is working towards supporting Python level 3.7, right? Uh, so I, I would kind of in the future like to see places where um, the actual innovation of Python happens in PyPy first. Like it makes more sense, right? Doesn't it? Like it's it's a language that is written in Python, so it's easier for people who are not comfortable with C to write there. Like it's 
It makes it faster to uh, kind of experiment, to try out different approaches. Um, so I would like to see PyPy like the kind of the front and center of research and development for Python. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And I wanted to transition into kind of more like goal oriented topics. And so I was curious, what is your philosophy for goal setting? Yeah, so I, I don't really have like a philosophy of very long term goal setting. Like I believe that life is a bunch of todays. Like one valuable thing that I learned at my time at Facebook is that plans that spend more than six months into the future like are just increasingly fiction. If you live in shorter increments and just regroup every say three months to see if your trajectory is good, that should be enough for you to become successful. That should be enough for your team to become successful. That should be enough to actually accomplish big things. But quite likely your success will not be what you initially thought. So that doesn't make sense to really draw detailed plans into like what you wish to happen like in the next five years. Like, you know, like there might be a recession that you didn't plan for, right? There might be something, some, some radical new development. Like, you know, 10 years back, uh, we only ever started to have the app store, right? Like, you know, and another 10 years back, nobody ever dreamed of having, you know, uh, smartphones with touch screens that you, you know, can replace every other mode of communication with the device. So, you know, like, those things are kind of not very uh well my friend likes to say it's, it's very hard to predict especially the future right so uh, <laughs> just having like a sh having like a short frame that you're looking into makes more sense like you know kind of to my well very simple approach to life right so for example i found about python at university because the ruby installer crashed on my windows xp box and i literally typed Ruby alternative in the browser search box. So that was not planned. It was not something that, you know, I spent uh, weeks researching what the best community for me will be. Like I didn't plan to become the release manager, like, you know, kind of 15 years later, like, you know, it was, there were no plans like this. It just, the Ruby installer just failed to install and I wanted Ruby because a friend of mine sent me a script that would help me with my math class. Like that, that, that was it, that was literally it. Like I wrote a, um, I wrote an opinionated uh, code formatter for Python called Black, and I wrote the initial version of it in six weeks out of frustration uh, with the preceding tool. I had very minimal goals for the scope, for the implementation, and for community adoption. I, I, I had no expectation that it would become so popular so fast. So those are just two examples like of a general theme in my life, which is that you know, like the, the best thing that you can do is take whatever comes to you. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, I was curious as far as metrics go, do you track, how do you track, or let me phrase it this way. Uh, how do you know if you're succeeding, I guess, with your goals? Yeah, well, uh, mostly in my life, I have to, I have to say that, you know, kind of you, you only ever value the good things that, you know, come to you, like come, looking back at them, like, you know, once they're already, you know, kind of uh, a good distance behind, like you can actually appreciate that, like, hey, that's actually awesome. Expect this to happen like you know as it did. Uh, so, like for example, you know, kind of, it is very hard to see where you are from the inside, from the vantage point of like being in the middle of the battle, right? Like you know. So back in 2012, I thought I was at the top of my game. Like I, I lived in a nice place. I worked for one of the biggest e-commerce websites in Europe. I spoke at international conferences. 
This is actually where, where a Facebook uh, recruiter found me. And then I got hired at Facebook and I moved to North America. And it turned out that I was actually a relatively junior engineer at the company. I turned out that, you know, it turned out that the big company that I worked for before was not so big after all either. You know, the talks that I was giving at conferences before, I was very proud of at the time, like kind of sucked actually. Like, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm doing better these days. So, you know, what, like the first 12 months at Facebook were such a roller coaster in many ways, like probably my most intense learning experience. So through this sudden leap of success, I experienced what it feels like to live in and get out of a local maximum. So tracking success is something that is, you know, kind of hard to do. It's, you know, how do you track it? Like in terms of concrete metrics, like you won't look at lines of code that I've written. You won't look at like, you know, the number of projects that I've delivered because like, who do you compare with? You know, comparing with somebody else is kind of a recipe for disaster. You only get unhappy with doing that. Uh, like, you know, for example, Mark Zuckerberg is uh, a year older than me, right? So every year I, I, I tell myself, uh, you know, at his birthday, like, I still have one more year. Right? <laughs> one more year and, you know, I'll catch up because he's a year older, right? But like, no, it's a, it's a recipe for just being miserable. Uh, so like the thing that I would track though is like this bunch of todays, right? So like sometimes it might actually be super overwhelming if you think like, oh my God, like there's all those things that I have to learn. There's all those things, that, all those hoops that I have to jump through. Don't, don't think about like all those things that are going to happen or maybe not like, you know, two years from now. Just think about doing the best with the adjacent possible. What it means is simply just do your best today, right? Mm -hmm. just, make sure that if you do have a plan to program spend some time programming today if you do have a time you know kind of plan to understand the memory model of a computer better better like just do something about it today that's how you can actually plan for it like you know otherwise you know like tracking how you did six months from you know from today or whatnot yeah like it is increasingly hard to have useful data that you can actually track uh, in this, this way. Like if you work for, a, for an employer and they tell you, hey, you need to make sure that, you know, okay, that this uh, P99 of those requests are under 100 milliseconds, or they, they're gonna tell you like that the amount of support requests have to, has to fall down like, you know, twice, you know, or whatever else. Like there are hard metrics, in, then you can hit those, that's fine. But for a personal life, very rarely it's 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 a metric that you can you know use in that clarity. Like you know, oh okay, a number of wives one. I, I guess I guess that's done now, right? Like, but it's not what what marriage is about, right? Like you know, actually kind of getting married is the start of this journey. Now you actually have to kind of make sure that like you know it lasts and makes sense for both the parties and maybe maybe more people in the future, right? So what I would say, hey, just look at today. Look at what you plan for today. Go and deliver that, and just don't worry about you know kind of you know uh, how you compare to others or what you should be tracking you know like for six months from now or twelve or twenty. Yeah, I'm I'm always prying for uh, people and their ideas on human performance. So thank you for sharing that. And I was wondering, when it comes to note taking, what do you consider important to document? And how do you stay organized with 15 years of notes? Yeah, well, um, so one thing that I understood, I understood very early on with my learning was that 
I actually remember things better when I write them down. It doesn't really matter if I actually do the motions of kind of, you know, long form uh, writing or I just use a keyboard. That didn't matter. But like this act of writing things down made me somehow like, you know, kind of put those things in a different part of my mind. So I have this rather kind of annoying, um, you know, mode of operation where I would like to type things all the time because I would just want to remember them in the, into the future. Uh, this is a good habit because in time I also realized that I don't remember so many things at a given time as I used to. Like, and I'm like 35. I just had my 35th birthday a week ago, but I do realize this that like, hey, like I remember being better at this than I am now because there is, you know, the kind of the operational memory that I have now, like kind of shrunk for some reason, right? And it's like not a terrible difference, but you know, you live with yourself every day. Like, you know, you can appreciate like, hey, like there is a difference. So putting things into notes, like feels, you know, good. It actually kind of, um, you know, it, it uh, leaves a lot of your operational memory empty for other things, right? Like you can just put that thing down and then recall it later. But how do you recall it, right? So I, I, I am this heavy user of like this app for macOS and iOS called Bear, where you can just, you know, start typing with Markdown, which I find like amazing because like, it's, it's not like Word where sometimes when something is not for, formatting as you would like it to, there's just no way to reformat it. You just have to abort mission and just restart it. <laughs> yeah. You don't understand what <laughs> invisible thing in the markup makes things behave as they are now. So yeah. like Markdown, way simpler. So Bear does this very well. Like it is very nice in this particular matter. It has very good search and it allows for this semi-structured, uh, you know, kind of grouping of your notes, which are hashtags, which can also have like slashes. So they, they can have like subtopics and subtopics and what. So essentially almost like a folder structure, but a single note can be with in many. So very often I would just put like many hashtags. Like you, you, you might laugh like, hey, this guy worked for like a social media company, so of course he likes hashtags. But like, but really it's just, you know, it's just a very uh, cheap notation for just saying that this particular thing fits in many places. So sometimes I would hear a quote from somebody that I like a lot. Sometimes that might be my friend and like, it doesn't have to be, you know, a president of the United States, but I would just say like, hey, I, 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 I see value in this. So I just put the quote down. And I would just put like, oh, this fits in this topic and this topic and this topic. So later on, when I go back to this particular topic for any reason, like a talk, or I actually do think of a problem that is related, I would just hit that. I would just find this code again. Um, so I use this. But like, I'm not particularly happy with some other things that Bear is doing. It's like my perfect, perfect note-taking app would be one that would be powered by Python where I would say like, you know, kind of, hey, Python has NLTK, Python has NumPy, Python does all of those AI, you know, data mining things like, you know, let me just put the thought down and make my note-taking tool assign topics to it, right? You know, it can, it can probably do a rather good job at this, right? You know, maybe it can analyze sentiment. Maybe it can at least say like, oh, this particular thing you wrote in Polish, because sometimes I still do. It's, it's, it's kind of weird, like, you know, my, my, my notes are a mess because of this. Like, you know, parts of them are in Polish, parts of them are in English. On different topics, I just think in different languages. It's, it's kind mm. of annoying. So, like, wow. having that in Python would be, would, would be good because, like, you could just have a very easy way to just translate from one to the other, if, if only for the metadata. It would be great. 
So, you know, like that is one unfulfilled dream that I have. <laughs> hey, put Python on a mobile device because I, I need my note-taking app with me at all times. I don't want to lug my laptop with me all the time. Uh, and sometimes it has to work offline, right? Which is a mm-hmm. thing. Like, you know, yeah, you, you could just do a website, but what if you are in an airplane, right? Like, you know, that doesn't mean like your thoughts stop. And the entire thing is that this is dependable. You can use it all the time, right? So, yeah, maybe this is something that we'll, you'll be able to address in the future. Either I'll pay for somebody to actually work on this, or maybe I'll do this myself at some point. But, you know, it's, it's, it's like a very, very, very long-standing dream that I have. You know, to have Python help you with this thing. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm always curious about... Um... Well, when it comes to books, I guess, like I'm a little obsessed about like, how do I extract, you know, like I could read a book a day, but am I putting that to work? Am I collecting all the golden nuggets out of it? And how do I leverage it? So I'm always kind of curious, like uh, when, when you put that in the preview, I was like, man, I wonder how he deals with all like that massive data. So it sounds like hashtags is one of your main mechanisms for staying organized with. Yes. And then, and then, you know, kind of, uh, it's a, it's a curse and a blessing that English is my second language because I'm not like terribly versed in it in, in terms of, you know, kind of, oh, I use the same word twice in a row in a sentence, right? Like, I, I would not care. I'm not going to spend time on a thesaurus because I just don't know, you know, very many synonyms of a given word say, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, it is kind of, it is a curse because, you know, it's, it, I, I would need an editor if I ever publish a book. <laughs> that is a blessing because it makes it so much easier to find things later. Yeah. You know, like, oh, this is going to be the term that I used for this, right? So you just type it in and it, it, it searches and it finds the note for it. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, more often than not, like, it, it does work like this. But sometimes I actually switch languages and then, and then it's annoying. Right? Sometimes, like in <laughs> Polish, there's conjugation. So the same word, you know, could just be kind of, could look a little different depend, depending on which place in the sentence it was in. Uh, so yeah, like this is where I, I really do believe like Python could like, you know, actually kind of still help me age a bit more gracefully because I expect this problem <laughs> of mine, like with the memory and everything, like, you know, to, to, to not get better actually. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, so how do you, how do you leverage the notes do you, that you take? Is there some sort of periodic review? It sounded like you had, do you ever delete them? Like, I'm just wondering if there was any color you could put on putting, you know, executing on those ideas or how do you? Yeah. So when I read a book, right, like, and, and, and by reading, I mean mostly reading, but also like to a large extent, I do use audiobooks because there's plenty of other activities that I do, for example, at home, right? Like, you know, if you're just kind of, I don't know, like doing the laundry or something else, like, you know, I find it very useful to just like, you know, have something, you know, talk to me at that particular moment right you know i know that there's some kind of purists that would say like if you eat eat right but <laughs> I, I kind of I, I kind of function like this i try like you know, yeah. what i like is like hey if i'm preparing like a wholesome meal for me which is going to take an hour because it always does for some reason i don't know it doesn't matter what the <laughs> recipe is it always takes an hour to prepare lunch so like when i do this uh i, I would have an audiobook just that talks to me right um so when I do those things, very often I would have my phone somewhere close by. And um, if there is a thing that I particularly liked, or I'm like, oh, this is important. Audible allows you to literally just highlight this particular moment to say like, hey, like, I just want to come back to this. Neither if I'm at my computer, because like an actual keyboard is way better than glass. Like I'll just come back and just 
really retype it in because you know kind of audiobooks are rather you know jerks about you know copying parts of text just for quotations you know fair use hey come on but you know like they don't allow this uh so huh. you know, i just retype the thing uh it's same same with kindle right like you know it's kind of like very often you just have to retype the thing but as i told you i actually remember things better when i retype them so i don't really treat this as like a major hurdle um but that actually gives me uh at least some summary of a book i read later on for later on um, and that, that I find very useful. Like, you know, very often I actually do have, you know, I, I am invited for a podcast, right? And I can just go ahead and, you know, can quote, you know, Hofstadter or somebody else, like, like I'm some genius. Like, <laughs> no, I just have like an awesome note ad, man. Like, I, I can do this all day. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. That's real powerful. Uh, I, I mean, just like a selfish motivation, like I'm super thankful that you shared that because it's, it's actionable for me. Hopefully it is for other folks too. So, uh, regarding war stories, I was wondering what was like the biggest lesson you learned from your intense learning experience at Facebook? (sighs) Yeah, well, um, one particular thing that I just comes to mind just right now is that, um, like, Facebook has this very strong kind of ethic that making mistakes is, is not like, you know, something terrible, right? That you can make a mistake and you can cause an outage uh, and, and that is fine. What is more important, like from, you know, kind of taking that person out the back and shoot them is to actually make sure that this kind of mistake cannot happen again. Right, so uh, what Facebook does is when there is an outage or any other problem, like many many of the problems that actually do happen for internal services never surface to the users. Like they, they don't really know that oh we were very close to the site going down or whatnot. Right, so uh, there is this kind of incident review. Right, like in, in Facebook parlance, it would be called a SEV review. SEVs are like site events, and they have numbers. Like you know, the higher the higher the number, the more trivial the thing is. But if you have a set one, that means probably the site goes down. So whenever this kind of thing happens, um, and you are in a set review and you are presenting, that means you were the direct cause of something, right? Maybe maybe it's not actually your fault because you you just like you know you just hit the the, the first domino and, and then something terrible happened. And, uh, but when when that happens, the entire form of how this is dealt with. And the entire uh, kind of follow-up is very productive. It really separates the people from the issue. And it really, you know, kind of hits those issues hard because, like, it's important for the company to make make sure that, you know, that kind of outage cannot happen in the future. But there is never any blame. Right, because like this is not effective. Like, you know, how how can this help you if you focus on telling people you shouldn't have done that? Especially as very often the problems that we actually do have is like, oh yeah, maybe that was a bit silly, but it wasn't it wasn't terrible for the other two hundred times you did this. But there was this other thing that caused this to actually, you know, um, bring things down or or whatever else. Hmm. So this separation, I I feel like was kind of eye-opening to me that, you know, even if very, very severe things happen, you can still think of them as, you know, as an opportunity to just kind of improve, to, uh, you know, into the future. Like, you know, and ironically, that, that probably made me a better parent because before I was a very ambitious parent, right? Like, I'm like, hey, my son can probably do the things that I could do, right? Because if I could do them and he's 
probably the better version, right? Because evolution, maybe like he probably should be rocking all those things, like you know, at least as soon as I did. Right? And I treated him as like at any given point as this finished product. I have expectations towards. Right now, I kind of changed this approach to like, hey, I'm treating him as this kind of you know person that is practicing to become who I am now, right? But like, but it's absolutely this other like stage of development, like at any given point in time, like, you know, I, I treat him as like, hey, like he, he's, he should not be kind of scolded for what he's doing now. He should be taught to not do this later on so that we can teach him to be a better person, like, you know, in a month's time or in a year's time or in two years time or whatnot, like, you know, that kind of changes the entire conversation. Uh, and also just for yourself, if you have your own development, right, just treating yourself as somebody in process, somebody who is changing, somebody who can still improve and maybe, you know, not beat yourself up for doing something that was, uh, you know, dumb or irresponsible or whatever else, like, you know, just don't do it. Just focus on like, you know, what can we learn? Where, where can we go from there? Yeah, that, that really resonates with me because uh, I know, at least for myself, like I can be really hard on myself. So I'm sure that happens to other people as well. And so that's a real strong message. So, uh, what can we learn from how you course corrected your career trajectory in 2010? Yeah. So like the question there was about like, you know, what was kind of like a single failure in my life, you know, that, that kind of, that I remember and it taught me something, but like, you know, the thing that I always thought about as the biggest failure of my life was my career trajectory in 2010. Like I was running a consulting business and you don't see this but i'm air quoting now because in reality <laughs> i had only one client that was responsible for 99 percent of my livelihood and that relationship was not going well on top of this i had some lingering contract that i signed too optimistically without planning for the worst so i ended up working over 12 hours every day for months on end and had relatively little to show for it financially it was like a bad time for my family and myself so when I was finally able to get out of the situation, I chose my next customer. And in fact, it became my employer purely based on monetary incentives. And that was an even worse situation. I kind of, I, I wish I didn't do that because, you know, that was an absolute mismatch for everything else than the money. Yes, the money was much better, but I worked away from family. And, you know, actually I worked in a different country from my family. So I only could see them on the weekends. And I worked on a thing that did not interest me at all. I had zero autonomy over what I was working on. And, you know, kind of, it was, it was so sad that, you know, at some point I, I kind of, I was worrying that, you know, not only my career would fall apart, but my family would fall apart. So there's a happy end to this, but there's also some hard lessons, right? So first and foremost, you are responsible for reading the fine print of the contracts that you signed. Like fight your optimism. I, I, could, I could be very optimistic in those days, but don't get blinded by the income you expect to get. Make a mental exercise thinking about what the worst thing that could happen is. See what the contract requires from you then, how it exposes you and your family. Ask around to see how the company you're about to interact with works internally. I guess it's probably possible. Probably you can either, maybe you know somebody or maybe you can actually Ask somebody, you know, and you know, like soon enough, with the decrease of separation, you will get actual first-hand information. You know, don't be an optimist. Like, look for warning signs that might mean that you're not well aligned with them. 
because you, what you need to understand is like, you know, it does not necessarily mean the company is evil, but you know, like people kind of like to work with other people who are alike to a certain extent. So just there, there's sometimes just misalignment there. Then don't commit too fast, especially if you're getting too eager because of money. I did, and that was, that was a six months of my life that I will never get back. Finally, sometimes it's hard to see how bad the situation is when you are still in it. I already talked about this, right? But mm -hmm. now there are days where I just cannot believe that I let things be this miserable for me and my family for so long. So it's important to have a breather every now and again and just look back and regroup. Mm -hmm. And again, like if you have a note uh, taking app, you can just kind of start typing, you know. Uh, like it, I don't have a separate journal from the, all the other notes that I'm taking. Some I just tag as journal because it, it just, you know, it just was less structured of a note than all the others. So it may, mostly it's tagged by the date and the fact that, you know, I just had something that I need to put down for some reason. And sometimes those things would end up being more full-fledged ideas in the future. But yeah, like, you know, the, the, those would be the, 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 the three takeaways, I guess, from uh this particular you know terrible time in my life yeah i love i love the uh perspective or like the outlook like um how there's something to learn from it i guess so i i, I just reflect on my own situation and sometimes it's like you know are we finding these learning opportunities i don't know if you can see this on my it says good are you you've, you've heard that message before Yes. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I, I'm trying to just continually brainwash myself. Like whatever happens, good, you know, learn something. From like, yes. Yep. Oh, heck yeah, man. So yeah, we're, I'm resonating with you a hundred percent. So, uh, the question for you, uh, transitioning into the, some open source questions here, and then I've got some closing questions and we'll probably be, be good here, uh, with our time. So, um, you had mentioned that beware was a project that was kind of on your radar and I did some digging around that looks amazing. It's, I, I was wondering what is holding that project back in your opinion from becoming more mainstream? Cause it seems like, like a no brainer. Yeah. Okay. So, so this, this one is actually easy. Uh, beware is a project that is, um, kind of striving to make Python viable as a platform to, um, make um, mobile applications, right? For example, for iOS and Android. There is some very limited support for iOS, but now they're working on Android and making some really good progress there. And the reason they are making good progress on Android is that they received a significant grant to actually be able to focus on this work. So open source is great if you can do like some very kind of closed form uh, library or a tool and maybe that then you only need a, a bunch of people, like in Black currently has seven core developers, including myself. Um, but if you actually strive to enable a new programming language in a significant fashion on a new platform where it wasn't available before, that needs a, a way bigger investment. Uh, so just, we can have things, uh, you know, that a bunch of people just prepare in a bunch of sprints, but no significant company, no serious developer would ever uh, decide to base on such a project for their livelihood, right? You know, you would rather choose a different approach to create your own mobile application because you're not 
kind of you don't trust this particular library or framework to be around for the next year or two or five. And why do you even need it around? Well, because Apple will upgrade iOS and make existing applications require some changes, right? You know, Google might change how Android works and you're now left with an application that worked on old devices but cannot work on new devices anymore. So this is one example where you really need good funding. So how do you make it more mainstream? Just pour money on it. You know, this is literally, there are people there who already know what needs to be done, but they just need to put in the hours. Uh, so that, that, is, that is a thing, like when, when people get something for free, they really kind of often don't appreciate the amount of work that it actually required to make it work. Right? Like, you know, like this, is a, this is an example of me using the same word too often, but what, it, what I'm trying to say is that uh, there is a lot of kind of uh, thinking and kind of heartbreak and decisions that you're going, you know, back and forth with, and stupid problems that you know are silly to, silly to really solve. But it takes sometimes days or weeks to solve them, and you don't see any of it with the final product. You just see, mm -hmm. okay, there's a nice uh, website with some nice docs, and you can actually follow the tutorial, and things happen as you expected them to. But you will never see that it actually took a month, you know, to only be able to use the I don't know the uh, simulator like the official simulator of the device with this because there was a problem, right? Yeah. Um, and those things, when can you actually spend time on this? Well, if you're getting paid for it, that's kind of a no-brainer, right? If it's only a hobby for you, then, you know, maybe we're going to be blessed with somebody who uh, decides to spend their kind of evening hours on a project like this. But for how long? Like, you know, can, can they do this for the five years? Probably not. Probably they will get, you know, bored um you know probably they will find something more lucrative or more interesting to do like you know you know yourself right you know like is there a hobby that you really kind of like you know hit for decades on end sometimes people have those hobbies but more often than not like you'll find something new that is kind of interesting they will do it for a while and then you know they, they will get rid of the equipment that was necessary and move to something else uh so same with maintaining an open source project so beware, you should actually go and see you know, how it works already. This is very impressive. Uh, if you do have the means uh, for your company to sponsor it, you should absolutely sponsor the, the development of it. Um, and you know, kind of help them in sprints, help them in any way you can. But there is no other way than to actually finance development like this. That is literally something that would be a huge enabler for Python if we could just use our favorite language to develop mobile applications. Yeah, that's I, I hear that criticism a lot that um, it's it's really strong in all these other departments, but when it comes to mobile, it just has a serious lacking, but not anymore. And especially if that project begins to gain more traction, it kind of reminds me of the uh, Dart, uh, the what Dart is doing, I guess, with um, uh, uh, it's. Oh, Flutter. So Flutter is yep. doing this cross-platform thing. and um, But I, I noticed there was some issues people were complaining about with Flutter where they were saying they, they, couldn't, they, they could build these apps, but because of the third-party libraries that they were using, when they went to go put the monetize the app on the App Store, they wouldn't allow it because of all this licensing. There was like a licensing nightmare. And so I was wondering, um, do you have any remarks on that for like with respect to the Beware thing or... Just yeah, so uh, like 
I do believe that it does not make much sense for a new platform like mobile to really kind of replicate what we are already doing with the library ecosystem uh, on PyPI. Uh, the reason why is that, you know, kind of um, Python is written in C and a lot of the uh, libraries that you're using and kind of just pip installing from PyPI are also written in C. Maybe just small parts of them, but still like there's going to be more C than you ever expected in very many libraries, uh, including Black actually. So uh, like having this in mind, it is very hard now to, to run a project like this on mobile where you only have access to Java or you only have access to Swift and Objective-C and whatnot. So you don't really get access to those. But even if you did, you would, would rewrite those parts in Python or any other language, you would find that very often the abstractions that uh, the, those libraries operate on, assuming that, oh, there's going to be a directory structure on, you know, on the drive or whatever else, like those things don't work anymore because the platform is different. Uh, you cannot just create directories, you know, and attempt directory, you know, in, in the same way or whatnot. Uh, so I do believe that we are going to have to kind of let some of the third-party libraries go when we uh, have like a serious effort to, to, to make Python viable for mobile. But in particular, Python is very known for um, using very, well, how would I call them? Permissive open source licenses. Those permissive licenses are different for the GPL style licenses, which actually tell you all those things that you cannot do with the code. Um, like the Python project and the third, third libraries kind of, you know, settled on mostly using MIT BSD style uh, licenses, which essentially just disclaim responsibility for your usage uh, of that particular piece of code. But then they just say, okay, you pretty much can do whatever you want with those as long as you do have some sort of acknowledgement of it. Uh, and even mostly now, people don't use this, this form of PSD. So like, you know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, so those, those licenses are very permissive. So with this in mind, I really do think that, you know, using Python in commercial projects should not be a problem. And in fact, there are multiple applications on the App Store as of today, which are embedding Python internally. Uh, one of them is Pythonista, which is, which is very good and it's kind of going kind of in the way where I would like with the note picking app. So I'm going to just be talking to the developer of that project a lot, I guess, um, to, to maybe enable some of the things that I still need. Uh, and, and yeah, and it does embed Python. And it embeds Python 3.6, I guess, at this point. Uh, you can do kind of amazing things with it. So you, you, should, you should also try this out as well. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And I wanted to touch on EdgeDB. Uh, I was checking it out. That seems like the holy grail of database technology. And I was wondering, what is it going to take uh, to see mass adoption with that project? And uh, if there is, well, yeah, let me ask that, that question first. I don't want to hit you with too, too many at once. Cool, yeah. So HDB is a database that started out uh, as just automation on top of an existing uh, serious database, right? So you can just go ahead and start a new project in 2020 and say, hey, we're just going to start a database from scratch. But it's kind of silly to just, you know, just throw away all this existing knowledge and experience. As I told you, very often it is very hard to kind of see the amount of effort that was spent on a given thing, only looking at the end result, right? So knowing this, just basing on something that is a very strong foundation, like, you know, it's the saying goes, you know, we just, we, we just 
standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, HDB is based on PostgreSQL. It is embedding PostgreSQL in it, and then we use Python, actually Python 3.8 with async IO, it's nicely typed, it's a very modern Python code base, uh, to enable um, usage at a way higher level. What that means is that this particular database already gives you things that you would expect from an entire like framework, like a JavaScript framework, or maybe Django-style framework or whatnot. So it gives you migrations. It gives you uh, a schema language that is uh, like way high level. It's declarative. It gives you uh, objects that can have links between uh, one another. And they, those links can be to one object or might be multi-links to many. Uh, so that particular schema and that query language that comes with it, which is a set-based language, so it allows for way more um, expressive queries with, with not so many edge cases as SQL does have, because SQL had a lot of kind of backwards compatibility concerns, you know, a lot of things that were like the group by statements just created in a bunch of days by one competitor to, you know, kind of outsmart the other, and now we're stuck with the syntax for decades. So, so, so like we have like a new query language that allows for uh, like querying the data in a form that turns out is very useful for uh, actual real world, real world applications. Um, so yeah, like I'm, I'm actually quite excited about this particular project because it does feel like an enabler to the next generation of apps where, yes, you could use maybe some document style database and that kind of lets you start out very fast. But quickly enough, you're gonna find that, hey, like you are rather um, limited in what you, what you can query for. So now you actually have to bring a lot of data from your database to your application to just do some analysis on your own and do some joins on your own like manually. With HQL, all those things happen where they should be happening. So on the database front. Hmm. Yeah, it, uh, I, that's kind of how I cut my teeth is from the data or from that was like the first language I really learned well was SQL. And uh, a lot of my professional work is in database, just working with the backends. So um, it's kind of a passion spot for me. And I guess the question that I have for you regarding this is um, what, like what's going to happen with the, with the ORMs or did you already kind of like, uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a great question because like what we feel at HDB is that, Yes, there are ORMs today that actually uh, do the SQL kind of behind your back. Um, and very often they are left with things that they have to do uh, suboptimally just because they are mapping two objects on the level of your application already. Like if you move, like if you really think about like this object uh, layer and you just move it to the database itself, that allows for like, Kind of amazing optimizations that can happen now but more importantly the client library that you're going to use and we already have client libraries for rust and for python and for javascript and more are coming uh, you already get like native object access right there so for python you just use those things like naturally uh, for javascript again you just get a bunch of objects right there uh, so it kind of removes the necessity to have a spe special layer that would just kind of you know, attach new objects to what you're already getting from the database. No, like the, 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 the queries that you're already executing are returning your objects. If you're putting objects in, this is what you're gonna get. So that, that is um, kind of a more natural way to do this thing. Hmm. 
Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, I look, I look forward to digging into that a little more. I, I feel a little embarrassed that I had never really heard about it. Um, so it is on the early stage kind of startup. Like the technology is interesting, right? Because as I told you, like it started out as this kind of, uh, increased automation that is just reusable between projects on top of PostgreSQL and it kind of th th there was ambitions to it like from day one but like you know kind of how how that set um, based syntax works for queries and whatnot like that evolved quite a while you know this uh, kind of um, the schema declaration language uh, you know kind of looked uh, differently before actually at first uh, it was more kind of Python inspired so obviously kind of YAML would be the thing right because YAML this YAML that like it kind of uses columns and it uses significant indentation so obviously for Python it makes more sense and nowadays like you know it actually doesn't because it, it, it uh, well like there, there were problems discovered with that thing so obviously this evolved for around 10 years now Right? But it only happened in last year that we would actually get funded so that we could get uh, a bunch of people hired to do this thing like full time, like in earnest to make a product out of it that we can then actually offer both in the cloud as a self-service offering uh, and, you know, kind of as a product that you can just download and install on-premise. Uh, so, like, again, this is an example where you know, without funding, you cannot really talk much about like, you know, kind of, it would be nice to have, like, yes, it would be nice, but you know, people actually have to have to have, you know, the means to work on a thing. And now we do, which is great. Like we are, uh, we're not kind of in, in a hurry. Uh, you know, we, we know exactly the product, how it needs to uh, look like. There is a roadmap. It is actually on the website. So you might follow on, on that, you know, how this development actually uh, looks like. And more importantly, this is open source, right? Uh, like you, you might already expect this because as a new database stack company in 2020, it would be kind of unreasonable to expect anybody to be interested in our product if they cannot see how it works internally. But mm. at the same time, it is still nice that it is a Python project that it is on GitHub. You can just go ahead and build it yourself, you know, and actually try to see how the compiler of your queries work. And, you know, like actually you can re reproduce our benchmarks that say that, hey, we are actually quite faster than many of the ORMs that you will have for JavaScript because you don't have to kind of, you know, bolt on another object syntax on top of what we already produce in the binary protocol for you. Uh, so it is, it is giving us a tremendous level of transparency, which I think is, is a good, uh, like, you know, for just, you know, kind of customer trust, but also for us because, you know, with enough eyes, all bugs become shallow, right? Yep. <laughs> uh, one one last question on this whole database topic. Um, there's a project that I recently came aware about called Post Rest, and in a with a Docker image, basically you can spin up Post Rest and a Postgres SQL, and basically it turns your uh, object or it turns all the the data model into like a like a restful API. And, and so I was just wondering uh, if you had any remarks on that for uh, like, it, maybe it's complete heresy, like removing, like outsourcing the entire backend to the database like that, or you, I don't know what yeah, you think so, about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, so, so um, this is very interesting. Like actually Postgres, uh, like I have not kind of used it myself, like I, I've heard the name kind of throw, thrown by somebody like, you know, like once or twice. Uh, like I, I don't know like how popular it actually 
uh, is now. But like it, it is kind of in the same space in the sense that like yes, it does build on top of Postgres, which is great, and it does allow you for a higher level of ways to query, right? However, like REST uh, is just one piece of the story. Uh, like for us, like this entire uh, you know model of your application where you just don't think in terms of tables anymore. You just think in terms of objects that have links with one another. So really think of it more of a graph database. Like that, that kind of, if you really free yourself from the concept of a table, like that allows you to rethink many problems in, in a more kind of um, ergonomic way. So I would think we are like here, like this is the main difference between an operating like HTTP and Postgres. Whether we should move all of our backend code into the database, well, uh, for well, tens of years now, you did have some samples of this functionality with stored procedures, right? Yeah. Uh, like Postgres actually has like a very powerful language there because, well, language, technology there because you can use multiple languages for those stored procedures. Uh, there are actually kind of, you know, problems with this approach that are pretty much um, disqualifying this entire idea. So the, the main problem is that how do you do version control then if your code lives in a database now? That was actually one of those things that you know was very problematic in Zope early in the day, right? So the if, if you don't know, like you know, Zope was one of the first kind of uh, well, I don't want to say content management systems because Plone was built on top of Zope to actually be a content management system. But Zope was this entire environment to develop Python applications that was backed with ZODB, so this object database that was on disk on that same box that your web server was, and you could literally code in the browser. And that was back in the 90s. It was amazing. But then you actually have to live in a world where you don't have good version control. Yes, you can roll back, you can maybe go back, but if you already did some changes to the structure of your documents, well, then, uh, that, that going back actually doesn't give you anything. You know, the, your, your project stops working now. And a related problem to this is that now it is very rare to only have one server. Even in a database, you actually probably want to have more for high availability and just for a kind of security and safety reasons. Like you want to make sure that you, know, you are backed up every time. Sometimes you really need uh, to be backed up to the last query that was executed. Um, so. If you have this, then how does the rollout work in a you know world where your code lives in the database? Like this sounds like a very tricky uh, problem, and in fact it is. Like you know, we we have like multiple uh, kind of ideas on oh it would be awesome if we could just move this to Postgres or we do this with Postgres, and it always is this kind of you know um, well balance, right? Where there are definitely things that you should put in a stored procedure because that ensures it's always executed, like makes makes sense for many things. But other things should actually happen in an application layer kind of on top of what you already did with Postgres. Uh, so like I would definitely think that something like HDB can outsource all of the database related um, boilerplate from you like for example, doing migrations, like in the, in the near future, we're gonna be working on an automated admin for your uh, like objects, right? So imagine like having like a Django admin with any project, and it doesn't matter if you're using JavaScript or Rust or Swift or whatever else for it, you always get the same kind of admin experience for free. You 
because you just use the product. So I do feel like this is the kind of thing that we need to provide. But your application logic, well, that should live in your application. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, I, so kind of in closing here, I know we kind of went over time a little bit, so I'll, I'll just buzz through this. Are, we're doing good on time. Okay, yeah. cool, man. So how has uh, being fearless with asking the question why served you? Yeah, well, um, I, I, how would I put this? I mean, in the environment that I, you know, I, I was grown up in, like it was never kind of, it was never bad to just be inquisitive to the point of being super annoyed. Like only now I discover how annoying I was because I have this little mirror running around and very often he would do a thing and it would annoy the hell out of me and I would stop and say like, okay, I'm actually exactly like that too. But it's kind of different to actually see him behave like this as an independent being. It kind of, it is very illuminating. So only only after like exp experiencing this, I noticed that okay, like it was very powerful to always be able to just kind of bang on a thing and, and ask like why, right? So uh, for me, it's important to at least be comfortable with the understanding that you have of things to the level that you need. And sometimes it is very important to have a little more than that. So you might actually not think that you don't understand a concept, but if you ask why just one more time, it turns out that like, oh, actually you had this kind of expectation on why things are, but it's not actually exactly true. And one amazing thing that amazing story I have about this is that like just 10 years back, just about as I was kind of, you know, getting myself out of this terrible situation I had uh, then, ironically, my coping mechanism was to just kind of, you know, do another thing, just on top of all those things that I already have, to also focus on yet another thing that could at least get my mind all of the work situation. So I started fixing bugs in the config parser in CPython, right? And after a while, after like eight weeks of doing this, like pretty much kind of like, you know, every day, like, you know, I would just post something, I would either code or on bugspython.org, I would just comment on something. Uh, you know, somebody finally said like, hey, like, you know, it's cool that you're doing this, but it's kind of annoying, like, you know, so like maybe we should just give you the comment bit so you can just do it yourself because, you know, it takes too much of our time. Um, so I, I got the comment bit relatively soon. Um, and Raymond Hettinger just contacted me on IRC at the time and said like, hey, you, you have a little time, you know, you know, a little bit of time. And I said, like, yeah, of course. Uh, and he, over the course of the next weeks, like spent probably north of a hundred hours with me just like for free, which must have been like the middle of the night for him because of the time zone difference. And he taught me some of the things about CPython that you couldn't even get for money if you wanted. Like that, those are the things you cannot buy. But he would tell me about all those things that are like, oh, we don't have this because. So again, you know, responding to the question why. And, and there was a lot of the reasons behind the design of the current language that opened my eyes into what are the easy issues and what are not the easy issues. Because looking from afar, very many things in Python look like very easy uh, to solve, right? It's like, oh yeah, of course, like Python doesn't have this, but like, you know, all we need to do is ABC. Uh, if you actually look at it uh, from the perspective of somebody who is doing it for a decade or two, you will finally 
you know, appreciate that, oh yeah, okay, like that was kind of maybe optimistic or simplistic or whatnot, because I, there are all those other considerations. So this question why, uh, and since then I also worked with Guido uh, on a bunch of uh, projects like the typing kind of, uh, you know, area of Python. So that, that never, that never, never um, was something that I, um, I would be sad about like, you know, that I would be disappointed by. Just ask more why, like it's every time you're gonna learn something, something new. And especially like in this particular community, like we have so many, so, so many new people, so many newbies that nobody will hold it against you to not understand what it, what it does, like how it behaves, why something happens. It, it, it doesn't mean like you're kind of beyond help. It just means you don't know it yet. Right? So if we just share, like, you know, you will suddenly also be a person that, that you know, that, that knows this. Like, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's true because I don't speak Japanese, but apparently the word for teacher in Japanese, like, you know, it has the same meaning as somebody that comes before. So it literally has this connotation of like, okay, this is just somebody who has more experience because they came before you. But, you know, if you spend the same time, if you, if you actually have some interaction with them, if you communicate with them, you, you can be where they are today sometime from now. Hmm. Man, that, uh, that's certainly a question I will be asking more. So thank, thank you for bringing that up. Um, uh, a question regarding listening to your body. I was wondering, once you uh, learn to listen to your body and not treat it like a machine, how did your quality of life improve? Yeah, so when, when I was younger, I would tend to like really think that I am like this hardcore night owl. I, like I kind of really uh, get up early. I, I, you know, I always sit there like until like 3 a.m. or whatnot, and then like sleep until 10, maybe 11, like, unless there's well university classes or whatever else. If there is a, if there is work that I need to be at, like you know, I would show up, but I would be useless before noon. Like you know, so I was you know kind of I, I fought my body with this kind of you know inertia essentially that I allowed for myself for a long time. But, you know, uh, since I moved to, to uh, Vancouver and later California, like, you know, I started, you know, hearing all those stories about people who, you know, picked up, you know, cycling or uh, yoga or whatever else, you know, and people having, uh, you know, either way better experiences now, like working at Facebook or conversely, people being so now kind of stressed and ambitious that they would have terrible experiences. They would have RSI now, they would have carpal tunnel or maybe back problems or whatever else. Uh, so I started, you know, kind of listening to my body, right? And, and you know, kind of responding to when, when it does actually tell me, hey, you actually need to sleep, so just go to sleep. Or to just treat it well in terms of like, you know, just shoving fast food down your throat. Like maybe kind of, you know, you're, you're not a machine, like, you know, you shouldn't expect, you know, kind of to be able to do this for a long time and get away with this. Uh, but you're not a machine and you should also shouldn't expect your output to be consistent, right? That's another like kind of nice thing about like my particular um, place, uh, you know, and actually any job that I enjoyed where like just setting very hard deadlines for yourself uh, regardless of like life and anything else is super unrealistic and stressful and doesn't actually win anybody anything, you know, the kind of, the secret that I can share with you is that 
all deadlines are arbitrary actually right so if you don't meet one like nothing will ever happen unless you're at apple then you're getting fired or like <laughs> any other company this is fine so uh, like, you know kind of you, sh you shouldn't expect your output to be consistent there will be days or weeks when you can accomplish with relatively little and then you'll kill it in five days you know when the time goes right you know, this this is kind of the the style of, of, of work that I, I you know i just i just do it's kind of uh, it's, it's natural for me to work in bursts and i've been doing that for years and you know I, i've been uh contributing to python for 10 years and i have like a bunch of peps that were uh written by me and accepted but it's always like this i would maybe just not do much for for a year or two for python and then just have like this burst of activity or maybe then i would just do relatively little little because now i'm this release manager i actually have to release things on a regular basis but then i would just start actually working on a particular problem and just kill it right so uh like that is how i do this and when i started fighting well i stopped fighting it and just started acknowledging that hey this, this is this is the environment I live in, and this is the kind of the body I am inside of or part of. Like stuff became much less, you know, anxiety-inducing, much less stressful, and I do feel better at the same time. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I when you put that on the uh, pre-interview, I was I definitely wanted to touch on that because I I don't I don't hear this talk a lot. Um, so thank you for sharing. Um, yeah, just kind of like some closing remarks here on uh, what are like, top, like, do you have some top tips for someone to monetize their programming skills? Yeah, well, so um, I don't actually think in terms of monetary income for my particular kind of like skills in terms of, you know, I always taught people for free, right? Like, you know, this entire kind of open source, uh, community that I'm a part of like has this um, you know ethos where you do you do talks right you spend time with other developers at the sprints but like even the big PyCon has this kind of setup where everybody pays including speakers right so like uh, other communities sometimes would be surprised by this when I tell them that I, I have no expectations of like monetary income for my talks or whatnot um and like books are also kind of you know here and there like i i never actually ended up finishing one i did try this twice but like you know long-term pros like it turned, turned out like you know it's kind of not a project for me maybe maybe something that i will still grow up to like you know maybe, maybe when i grow up uh but for now like you know kind of more closed form um uh, things that i work on like talks like you know uh some sort of tutorial or not uh, would work for me but I don't treat this necessarily as a source of income. Uh, a source of income for me, like you know, like like the job I had at Facebook and the job I do have now, is that um, at any given point, you need to realize that um, everybody is unique, right? Like you know, there's this kind of uh, ironic saying that you know, kind of everybody is unique, just like you, and you know, can, what does that even mean? Well, well, it actually there can be 7 billion people on earth and actually there can be things that you are uniquely uh, capable of that other people are in a worse position to do. Uh, what that means is uh, in programming specifically, there are plenty of topics that you can go deep in and you can get uh, you know, a very expert knowledge of. 
So in any particular shop, any particular company, you can become an expert in a particular field, right? Maybe it's a Python shop, so everybody knows Python to a certain extent. But maybe you know abstract syntax trees better, so you are able to make tooling that kind of modifies the code, maybe formats it, maybe do something else with it. Or maybe you actually did some very painful projects in the past that uh, kind of migrated uh, some large systems from Python 2 to Python 3. So now, hey, like, guess what? Like, this is your superpower. You can maybe help other people do the same now. Um, same with other things. Maybe actually you worked for a company that had some custom, a very old uh, like Oracle installation back in the day, and now like you are able to face with some financial systems that are still on that, whereas other people just kind of scream in anger that it doesn't behave like Postgres does. So uh, like in any case, find that niche and just run with it. Like my first team at Facebook was cache consistency. I was very far from Python there. And uh, like I have a little hope to actually becoming somebody who is paid to do work that is core Python. But I ended up having this because you know I can I pushed for it for a number of years and finally I got this I had this Python team set up and like long story short it, it was actually largely profitable for Facebook because we did move uh, Instagram from Python two to Python three there's a good PyCon US uh, talk on this by Lisa Guo so I recommend you watching that because it was like a fun project that I was part of uh, so yeah like my my kind of tip there like to how to monetize just you know. Don't be afraid to go deep on a particular thing because that particular thing might be then useful for others. Dang. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Thank you for sharing that. And I was curious, after this one, you're, you're pretty much off the hook. What is the best piece of advice you ever received? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> so there, there was actually plenty of advice I received even now, right? You know, kind of, it's, it's, it's still funny, but, you know, just working, say, with, with Guido, like, I'm always going to be this junior guy, right? You know, okay, there's just no, no, no two ways around this. Um, like, best piece of advice, wow. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, like, let's maybe not go for the very best, but for something that really stuck with me. Because, okay. you know, there's, there, there might be many things that I, I, I would maybe agree with or not, but uh, there are a few that I just kind of always decide to just coming back to, right? Mm -hmm. So like one particular thing that I always come back to is this, this, this idea that like you have to have this routine that like protects the things that you need to accomplish for to, to, to be happy like long-term, right? So it is kind of, I, I'm not sure if that was just in the training I got or it's actually in the book, but I didn't really like the book. There was like this seven habits of highly successful people, but there's this there's this uh, story about like this jar and how like you can like fill up the jar with big rocks and then increasingly smaller pebbles and then still sand to make the jar really really full, right? But if you just started with sand, like you know, you would never be able to put the big rocks in later. So like that is this one thing that really stuck with me that like. That's the important thing. Everything else, like, you know, you can kind of work around with and improve incrementally. But this one thing that you need to start with is just make space for the big rocks. Uh, like, uh, otherwise, you, you, you kind of do it the other way around. Yeah, that's, man, that's awesome. Uh, seven habits of highly effective people. Cool, man. Um, okay, so 
what is the most important book to read in 2020, you think? Wow. Uh, actually, it's cool. Uh, so I have a few. And uh, all of them are part of Inserto by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Like, I highly recommend reading him. Like, first of all, like, the style of prose is, 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 is very satisfying. Like, the guy really, like, you know, um, tells it as it is. But uh, he's actually kind of, there's a lot of wisdom behind what he says. Like, essentially, this is one of the few people who worked in finance uh, like you know before 2008 and he got tremendously rich by you know the crisis happening and the reason why is that he expected that things are going to fall apart and he was talking about this openly having like scientific papers on this before but like hey like things kind of go on like this and he has a series of books called inserto on this starting with uh fooled by randomness but like the, the one i started with and maybe that is actually the best kind of way because it kind of gives you like you know puts you straight at the most interesting part is anti-fragile. Um, so this entire series of books, I actually kind of highly recommend. It also goes into ethics, which I find like super lacking in the current setup of governments like across the world actually. Like, so, so, so that comes in a later book, like Skin in a Game. And as you can expect like from the title, it really kind of says that, you know, the current world is set up in a way where most people that are responsible for like deciding how things are going to go are actually protected from the consequences of their decisions right hmm. they don't have skin in the game and that disconnect is the evil that we actually see in the world right if we actually had this come back to this kind of hero ethos where um, actually, you are responsible for your own uh, decisions, like the architect who has to stand, you know, like underneath the bridge when it's tested by the infantry or whatnot. Like, you know, that, that would make people make uh, fewer rash, fewer very risky and uh, hurtful decisions. But that's just skin in the game. Like, you know, kind of this entire series of books, especially with this uh, kind of pandemic that is, uh, you know, kind of raging right now. It's, it's like, it is both illuminating, um, calming, because it turns out that you are not crazy, that those things can be, uh, you know, uh, thought about. But also that people are not really built to understand statistics intuitively. It does like a tremendous work in explaining that, yes, like what people think about as, you know, kind of this common sense, is, is neither common nor very sensical very often when it comes to statistics. Like, you know, people don't think very well about probabilities. Uh, so that, that entire series of books, highly recommend. Cool. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. And uh, going into 2020, what are some top programming languages that you think people should keep on their radar? Uh, I personally look at Rust as the system le systems level language that uh, has like two particularly interesting features to me. Uh, so the first feature is that it is memory safe. So this entire uh, group of uh, problems that cause tremendous heartbreak in terms of security uh, just goes away. You cannot make, um, well, unless you really say unsafe a lot in the syntax of Rust, you cannot make memory uh, bugs, you know, kind of expose you, um, you know, in security wise. But the other thing uh, that I find kind of very intriguing about Rust is their concept of kind of costless abstractions. What that means is that they have uh, 
syntax or libraries or like kind of features of Rust which look like they are very high level, so like similar to what Python is doing, for example, for async and await. But later on, the compiler is responsible for putting things in the right order, in the right way, so that this abstraction that you used as a programmer to write less code, to write more clear code as a human, that does not slow down execution. And that is cool, because in Python, we also have this you know, kind of um, Zen of Python, where we say beautiful is better than ugly, explicit is better than implicit, and so on and so on. So people would then, you know, it's, it's important to write functions that are small and do one thing right and whatnot and what's not. Yes, but every function invocation actually does have some minuscule but a non-zero cost, right? So sometimes like in a particular tight loop, it makes sense to just manually go and inline this function because it makes our Python work faster. So Rust has costless abstractions, so it'll identify things like this for you and do this work for you, so you can still write beautiful code for the reader, but actually have it executed faster. Hmm. So it sounds really cool. So uh, certainly uh, we will keep that on our radar. And uh, all things considered, we talked about a ton of topics today. What is the message that you want people to leave the interview with? <laughs> Uh, well, like the, the most important thing, I guess now, is that Python is at a super interesting point in its life, right? Like we are leaving Python 2 behind. So now like we are back where we were like 10 years ago, right? Which was this kind of world where Python is just being developed by uh, one team and there's one community and there's like this gigantic split is now kind of uh, you know, close to be solved. Like, I, 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 I don't want to lie, you know, there's still projects that are left on Python 2, like there's still going to be tremendous work that is necessary to port them. Not all of them will be ported, uh, but like the community moved on. The open source libraries on PyPI moved on. Uh, tooling support moved on. So this is this kind of very unique moment in time where we can work now together to get uh, Python do what we actually expect. And what you have to understand is Python is not one community. It's very many communities. You have people doing web work. You have people doing data science and artificial intelligence. You have people doing automation. Uh, you can people doing um, internet of things, uh, devices, right? Like you have CircuitPython, MicroPython and whatnot. So there are very many communities in fact, uh, but they are using the same language. So now is the time to just get involved in Core Python. Uh, like people might have expectations of what Core Python should do for them. Uh, like the good news is that they can actually get involved and maybe do some of their work because it's open source, right? Like you know, unless you're getting paid for it, like people are only going to work on the hobbyist thing, that the thing that personally interests them. So if you do have a thing that you are very interested in and would like to see it in Python, now is the best time to actually get involved. Hmm. Awesome. And we might have already covered this, but I just want to just last, last uh, request for you. What is your call to action going forward here for the audience? Uh, well, my call to action for the absolute beginner is just go ahead find uh, like a good fundamentals course, go through it and then find a project and just do it until completion. 
Just don't get bogged uh, down by all those extra things that you can do. Just kind of let somebody else do it for you. Now everybody is at home, like you know, so they're gonna have plenty of time to help you with that. Uh, like read that, uh, you know, teach yourself programming in ten years uh, essay that will calm you down. Like you know, I know it did me. Um, so like that is for the absolute beginner. For people who are already kind of you know doing Python for a while and whatnot, just go ahead and see how you can make core Python better. It will be amazing to have you involved because the more people we have, the more eyes we have on the bugs, and the more hands we have to actually work on features. Some of them might be kind of life-changing for everybody, like uh, the just-in-time compilation or enabling Python on platforms that it is not available on yet, like mobile. Uh, so all of those things, you know, there's plenty of, uh, plenty of it, you know, to go around. Uh, and actually, it's kind of fun, too, to have, you know, uh, people that you can ask questions to and, you know, people that actually ask questions to you, right? So now it turns out that, you know, you have some valuable knowledge as well. So yeah, that, that's it. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much the show there. Thank you so much for joining me and uh, all the nuggets of just the knowledge bombs that you dropped on us. Thank you so much. So, Sure thing. Very happy to be here. Yes, sir. All right. Peace out. Cool. Peace.